I'm going to pray before we get started. This is our last week of the scripture series, and um, I'm just really excited, and I just want to um, just kind of set the tone of where we're going. Father, thank you for this gathering. Thank you for these people and these stories in the room. Recognize that there are so many different stories, backgrounds, beliefs, fears and hurts that make up our story. And we are collecting together this morning. And our goal is to participate in your story as best as we know how. So God, I really do ask that that would rattle us a bit today. That there could be some good reflection on what is it about my story that's not fitting into yours. And so God, be with us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Tomorrow night, we're going to have a little talk back chat session, panel discussion. Randy and I are going to be here um, to talk about some of the questions that have been submitted over the last number of weeks. And um, now, just so you know, I just want to pregame this. Like, this isn't like Randy Ryan Bible answer guy time, okay? This is us giving our best wrestling we've done in our lives. Um, we don't have it all together. We haven't have it all figured out. We're just going to have a conversation. And so we would encourage you to come tomorrow night, 6.30 to about 8-ish. Um, we won't get to everything, but we're hoping to just have a good time talking about scripture and wrestling out the tension that comes with some of these questions that we have. So um, and, and here's what I would say. Um, in this room, just like I prayed, there are many of us that come from different backgrounds when it comes to the Bible. Some of you have come from places where you just don't know much about the Bible and you, what you know of it freaks you out. Some of you come with some assumptions about it, some fears about of it out of it. Uh, you might have your cultural location, whatever. Some of you come with a background of going to church as a wee little child, and you feel like it's just been like, um, just pushed into you in ways that are, now you're trying to like wrestle out, what does that mean? Like, why did they say it like that? Is that really what God meant? And so you're unpacking and kind of looking at the pieces and wondering how they fit. And I get that. And that's why we're a community. Last week, we talked about we're shaped by story. That story actually shapes us. That we're actually, we learn information. We communicate through story. We connect through story. But for there to be, for there to be a story... Um, there must be a mechanism that drives the story or, in a sense, a mechanism, that, a mechanism that helps us to understand where we fit into the story. One of the mechanisms for story is conflict. 
When you watch a movie or read a, a book, there's always conflict. And the conflict kind of drives, in a sense, where the story goes. Scripture has that mechanism. Scripture has the mechanism of conflict. And to deny conflict, you lose the story. You miss out on where the story goes. In the story of Scripture, Genesis 3 is that mechanism. It's the mechanism that, unfortunately, a lot of times becomes the beginning of the story, but it's not the beginning of the story. It's part of the story, but it's not the beginning. There is an antagonistic driver to the story that helps us understand and ask questions when it comes to things like earthquakes and cancer and brokenness and violence. What's wrong? How did we get here? Why are things broken? Why am I like this? Why do people do that? We learn that from the mechanism of Genesis 3. But we don't start there. Like I said, we don't start there. We spent the whole fall of 22 talking about God's intention for creation. We called that goodness. We called that tov. God created, called things good, called humanity not just good, but very good. And that word tov actually means something better than our word good. <laughs> Way better than our word, word good. The Hebrew word tov, and we're going to try to pop this on the screen, does not mean merely pleasant or pleasurable. It means capable of, presently engaged in the process of, and destined for completely filling the divine purpose for which it was created. So, like we talked about this last fall, tov means something that works perfectly how it was intended to work. That is the beginning of God's story. Not Genesis 3. A lot of times, though, in families like this, the Genesis 3 part seems like that's the beginning of the story. It's not. But it is the conflict mechanism by which we can understand why things are broken. See, at the beginning was bounded creativity. Meaning in the story we're about to read, God had created things with goodness and completeness and thriving and working and flourishing. But it was within bounded structure. There was a boundary to the garden. And within the garden, there was a bounded set of things to participate in and not participate in. But within that bounded structure was full creativity for humanity to flourish, for Adam and Eve to flourish, to, to name, to steward, to, to see things come to their perfect flourishing. But then we read Genesis 3. Verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? So the serpent is questioning the boundary. 
the bounded of it. The serpent begins to merely ask questions. All we know is that the serpent was crafty, and that Hebrew word means intelligent and devious. Okay? Did God really say? It's the question. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, makes a statement, you will certainly not die. Uh, not die. God is lying to you. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Notice what the antagonist, antagonist goes after. What does the antagonist go after in the story? Throw it out there. Okay. Eve, <laughs> well, kind of, but <laughs> would you say truth? Truth, Yeah, he goes after actually trust. Did God really say? So what, what God said, God, God's word to Adam and Eve were, do you trust that? Are you sure you're trusting that? Are you sure you should trust that? And Adam and Eve's trust, their trust in God, their trust in God's love, he goes after that. He's holding out on you. So the baseline of this way of thinking is to redefine what is good and what is not good based on, for Adam and Eve, the voice in their heads and the desire in their heart rather than to trust God at his word, okay? That's the mechanism of the story. Now, this story is mythological in genre. Some of you just freaked out. That does not mean it is a myth that it's made up or it's not true. That's where some of us get the word myth. Exactly the opposite. It's, it is mythological in that it's the deepest kind of truth there is. So, human tendency across time, across race, across uh, cultural uh, people groups throughout history <laughs> sees this, wrestles with this. I can be in a police car with the most atheist of cops and they're like, yeah, human tendency is pretty broken. The redefining of reality on the voice in our head, so our own, our own neuropathways 
or in our heart rather than trusting in God and his loving design and his wisdom and his intelligence and his desire for us to flourish, his desire for, to take us to a happy and good life, a tove existence, is what this is all about. So the key insight for the reader of this passage is the essence of sin is trust. It's all about who we trust. Ignatius of Loyola, great definition of sin. He says, sin is the unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is my deepest happiness. We sin because we believe a lie. And it's about what we think will make us happy. And we trust other stories more than we trust the word of God. And this is the story of scripture from Genesis 3 all the way to Jesus. It's on repeat. At a national level, at an individual level, this is like rinse and repeat all the way through to Jesus. And when we get to Jesus, what we experience is a human being, fully divine, fully human, but the opportunity for this human to do something about this rinse and repeat. This human being, Jesus, where Adam and Eve failed, he succeeds. Where Israel failed, he succeeds. Where you and I consistently fail, he succeeds. Matthew chapter 4 is this beautiful picture of what we're talking about. I'm going to read this to you. It says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, and this is Genesis 3 all over again, if you're not picking up on the story. <laughs> if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, this is right out of Jer Jeremiah 8, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and said to him, stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it is written, and this is the devil quoting Psalm 91, which is really interesting. Um, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift up their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered, it is also written, Deuteronomy 6, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to the high, very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, Deuteronomy 6, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. Now, I just want to give you a little quick example of how this scripture has changed in my life. So when I was in high school singing that song, You Are My All in All, which brought back all the high school feels, um, in my high school youth group, I remember the passage being about temptation. And um, the goal of, I think, my youth pastor 
the time was to um, keep our youth group kids. I mean, they had really good intentions too, but there was partly a little bit of like, don't do bad things, do good things, right? And so this was a great passage for them to zero in on and go, okay, when you're tempted, quote scripture. Like, this is what I got as a high school. I'm like, oh, I need to quote scripture when I feel like lustful or when I feel angry or I'm going to do something like cheat on an exam. I got to quote scripture, right? Um, as if like, <laughs> never mind. I'm going to stop right there. <laughs> but it'll, and I'm lear- I've learned it since then. I've come a long way since I was in high school. And I've learned that at a large level, this is about Jesus succeeding where all of humanity, Israel, and you and I have all failed. But at a deeper level, Jesus and the devil are in a debate on whether or not to trust Scripture, to trust the words of God as an act of trust in God. That makes sense? They're, they're, in, they're in a debate about whether or not to trust Scripture, because they quote Scripture as an act of trust in God or not. Trusting the words of God for Jesus, for his life, for his flourishing or not. In this moment of temptation, Jesus has a chance to undo the track record of trust failure throughout history. So, He doesn't just say no to temptation. He does, but he doesn't just do that. Nor does he just quote scripture as if he's doing these like hairy spells back, you know, like whatever they are. They're they're there. I didn't, you know, I don't know. I don't recall them. Jesus trusts the words of Scripture as an act of trust in God, as a human being trusting, as, God, as Jesus' divine human trusting in those words as an act of trust. Jesus' posture here is amazing because his way of reading and his way of living under Scripture has actually come to become called in the last probably number of decades, biblical authority. Now, some of you feel weird inside when you hear those two words. There's like a weird feeling you get inside. You, what you, if you were to close your eyes and imagine what that means, you're probably envisioning a grumpy old white guy with a full suit and a large Bible, right? Are you, are you tracking with me? Now, I am an older white guy, um, but, um, but you, may, you might get squeamish just hearing those words, biblical authority, right? Like, it hurts our modern Western ears a little bit. And so when we hear biblical authority, why does it give us unease? Well, it's because we live in a time where we're literally allergic to anything authoritarian. 
any authority in our, we're just allergic to that word a bit. We live in a world that's about speak your truth, follow your heart, and you do you. And so when we hear biblical authority, we get weird, even for us church people. Now, how do we get to this point? Well, we got to this point because of a, of a lot of historical philosophy that's kind of pushed us in this direction. And we'll get into that here in a second. But last week, I just gave you a definition of um, religion that Tim Keller has. And it goes like this. Religion is a set of beliefs that explain what life is all about, who we are, and the most important things human beings should spend their time doing. And by that definition, we are all religious. We all come to a decision and to a a framework of how to live our lives, uh, what life is all about, who we are, and the most important things we should do. Now, when it comes to authority structures and things like that, we are squeamish because we have a history of philosophy that has actually just embedded itself in our culture. It comes from characters, one guy named Sigmund Freud, another guy named Charles Taylor. And uh, Freud, he taught, and some of you are in high school, you're going to get some philosophy here. I don't know if you are in high school. Do they even talk about a philosophy in high school? I don't remember. Maybe like this much. Um, all neuroses, all neuroses, Sigmund Freud kind of said that all neuroses, neuroses is, is actually from uh, oppression from outside of us or repression from within. Meaning, he goes on to say, he talks about authority in this way, but um, whether the state or the church or gender or commands or whatever, he said that, it, it, that, that all this authority in our lives, all these kind of bounded places in our lives, are, they were good for us for a time, but now they're just actually either oppressing us from outside or repressing us from within, and this creates an unhappiness. So neurosis comes from when you and I shove down any desire we have or people on the outside of us tell us to not have those desires. What was Freud's solution to that? Break the chains. You do you, right? Uh, Whatever you want, you do it. As long as it doesn't, no, he did have this caveat, as long as it doesn't harm anybody. Problem is, is we don't agree on what harm is. And so any, any urge you have, just go for it. This is unbounded creativity. Contrary to the garden, which was bounded creativity, this is unbounded creativity. Now you mix in a little Charles Taylor. Charles Taylor questioned the framework about how we as human beings see the world structurally. Okay? Instead of seeing the world as having like intrinsic meaning, like there's like a meaning to life that we all try to seek and find, he put an emphasis on the ability of the individual 
to take the raw material of the world and form it however they want. Here's a quote that might help with that. A guy named Carl Truman, he writes this. And, and basically it's two different ways of seeing the world. There's a mimic and poet, poet, it's poesis. It's, it's, I don't know what the best, it's not poetic, it's poetic. That's what it is. We'll, we'll cut that off the podcast because he says a mimetic view regards the world as having a given order and a given meaning and thus sees human beings as required to discover that meaning and conform themselves to it. Poesis, by the way of contrast, sees the world as so much as raw material out of which meaning and purpose can be created by the individual. See the two differences? Instead of in discovering this, like, what is the meaning of life? It's out there, and I'm seeking to find what, what it is and how to fit into it. It's seeing the meaning in here drives from within. So you have Freud, and you have Taylor, and then you throw in this kind of, like, general distaste we have as a society for anything from the past, good or bad. You talk to a lot of people and they just despise history because it's just a bunch of messed up stuff that, stuff that happened and we don't really understand why it happened, but we don't care. Andrew Hill writes this, we find ourselves living in a society that craves a future without a past. Increasingly, North American culture is characterized by a centripetal individualism that scorns any communal record framed in the present tense because of its preoccupation with self-gratification in the present tense. So you throw in, you do you, Freud. You can find meaning from within and do not look at the past because everything revolves around you. You throw scripture into that, gets kind of, kind of tricky. But what's interesting about Scripture is central to the writers of Scripture is there's this idea, and especially the Old Testament and the Hebrew writings and especially the wisdom literature, you get this sense that there is a moral knowledge to the universe, that there's some kind of an order there this mimetic understanding of the world that regards the world as having a given order and a given meaning and that human beings have an opportunity to discover what that is. Now, when I just talk about wisdom, it's this, it's this word that comes in Hebrew as hokamah and it's all over that chunk of scripture we talked about a few weeks ago called the ketuvim, which is all the writings and the wisdom literature and all that kind of stuff. And this Hebrew word for wisdom, hokamah, is, it doesn't mean like just street smarts, although it has a little bit to do with that. But it has this undertone of this idea of living your life in alignment with reality, like actual reality meaning the writers of the wisdom literature would say that human beings can know 
ethics, that we, can have, we have a sense of what is right and what is wrong at our core. We have this just kind of an idea that this is hurtful, this is not. That, and that the writers of the Hebrew scriptures actually think that not only can you do that, but you can actually know God. Then you can actually know God, you can know these ethical ideas, and not just in theory, but to the same way we can actually know natural laws in the universe. Like we experience gravity. Like we experience rightness and wrongness. We experience flourishing and decay. And so if the writers of the wisdom literature kind of felt this way, they would say that there are, a moral and rela- there are moral and relational laws in the universe that are just true. They exist, they exist independent of our opinions. And this is why so much of the Bible is story and poetry more than in the form of commands. We had that, that pie chart a number of weeks back of how much of the Bible is narrative and poetry and how much is actually teaching and commands and discourse. And it's much more narrative and poetry. So think about, I mean, just, let's just zone in on Jesus here for a second as we get towards the end of this. Think about some of the things that Jesus taught. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It is more blessed to give than to receive. The last shall be first. None of those are commands. Those are just statements about reality that Jesus is making. And look at all of Jesus' parables. Like, not one of Jesus' parables ends with a command. They're just statements about how the world actually is. And so Jesus saw himself and his teaching, along with all the scripture that came before him, as an access point to reality, an access point to wisdom. And he bore witness to that reality in his own life and his own body. He bore witness to all that came before him. And so, like, take a look at this. End of the Sermon on the Mount. I love this. Um, we're, we're kind of reading this through in our small group. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it says this. When Jesus had finished saying these things... Basically, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus teaching about the Old Testament, like in a, he kind of sums it up. It's beautiful and, and really difficult. <laughs> and he said, uh, Jesus had finished saying the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not their teachers of the law. So they were amazed at his teaching. That he taught with authority. That word authority is exousia. And it's broken out, out of, and it's out of basically oneself. So his authority comes from who he is. Not because he had mastered everything. His life and his living witness to reality. So think about it. Jesus had no structural authority He wasn't part of the Sanhedrin. He wasn't a part of the Roman Senate. There was no military at his back. He wasn't creating legislation. He had a totally different authority. 
He didn't have structural authority. He had spiritual authority. And Jesus is not coercive. I mean, you see it all throughout his life. Jesus is not like, like manipulating people and putting pressure on people. He's just inviting people. Like, read the Gospels. When, when people hear Jesus teach and then they opt out, what does he do? He just lets them walk away. He just lets them choose. He has such great respect for human freedom and dignity. For us to make our own decisions, even if they corrupt us from the inside out. So Jesus' authority and that of the scriptures is our access point, I believe, to reality. And we get to decide whether to live with it or against it. To live in alignment with God's reality or in conflict with it. And we don't, if we live in conflict with it, it's not like God zaps us and you can see a lot of people living outside of God's intention for reality, and it looks like they're having a fantastic life, right? But at some point, we begin to reap the out-of-alignment life. And he lets us. So we shared a few weeks ago vision as a community that we're And out of Colossians, it talks about becoming fully mature. To present to each other fully mature. That great mystery, Christ in you, Christ in me, the hope of glory. There's a process for that. Part of that process that we named was this idea of being rooted as a community in Scripture together. And we said a few weeks before that the Bible is a library of writings that are both human and divine that together tell a unified story which leads us to Jesus. So the proposal I have for you today is something called story authority. That there's a story that we're invited to step into. That if we allow it, it forms us. It invites us into something that got a trajectory that God is taking us somewhere. And it's not about following the rules, but it's about living out the story of the scriptures. Let me explain how this looks. The famous biblical scholar, N.T. Wright, has this picture of what scripture looks like as a five act play. Anybody like plays? Over here, yeah, musicals especially, but five-act play, a drama. And what I began teaching this morning was act one is that beautiful, flourishing intentionality for creation, and act two was what we call the fall. And this five-act drama is something we actually get to participate in. We don't just watch it and go about our life. We're actually invited into the participation of the story. Let me quote this from N.T. Wright. He says this. These are the five acts of the play. Creation, fall, Israel, Jesus. 
the New Testament would then form the first scene of the fifth act, giving hints as well as how to play, how the play is supposed to end. Okay? So when we read the New Testament, we're reading the beginning of the act that you and I get to participate in as actors, as actual living actors acting out the story of God taking it to its conclusion. Does this make sense? Our job is to act out the missing bit of Act 5. We have the beginning, and we have the end. Although there's a lot. We have the end, and in the life and death and resurrections and teachings of Jesus, if they've caused you to surrender your life, and bring your life into alignment with the invitation of Jesus, that means you and I get to step into the story because the story has bearing on us. It has authority on us. So we step into it and live based on what has come before and in light of what is to come. And T. Wright says this, Scripture is an unfinished drama which contains its own impetus, its own forward movement, which demanded to be concluded in the proper manner, but which required of the actors a responsible entering into the story as it stood. In order first to understand how the threads could appropriately be drawn together, and then to put that understanding into effect by speaking and acting with both in, innovation and consistency. Bounded creativity. You and I are bounded to the story of God. And we get to be creative. That we get to participate in it. We get to have our imaginations and our participation come to life in Acts chapter, in the act five of the drama. So this life of being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus and doing what Jesus said is actually part of us participating in the play. That is your life. That is your job and your family and your neighborhood and your community. That you get to use this as, a, as, a, as a, a chance to be imaginative and curious and creative. And guess what? Sometimes you're going to get it right. Sometimes you're not. And that's part, I mean, have you read the New Testament? <laughs> Sometimes they get it right. Sometimes they don't. Story authority is, I think, the authority that really works. The goal for this series, church, the end game of all of these conversations is to reawaken our willingness to engage the scriptures for our formation as a community. We learn how to play the part, how to be a part of this creativity in this story. So when it comes to reading the Bible, the most important posture you can have is openness and willingness to be formed by it. We should study the Bible. But Bible study is not the end goal. If it is, it ends up being this information gathering thing. 
And information's great. We all love to learn more things. Bible study, or here's the other thing, Bible study can become a means by which we figure out how the Bible fits for the way we want to live. Which is really, really, it's actually easy to do. It helps you fit your own desires and your own opinions and your own assumptions about life into, you know, a framework. Our posture should be to unearth actually God's wisdom, his hokuma, his vision for reality in our lives. And here's the deal, guys. Scriptures are old enough. They're literary enough. They're mysterious enough to manipulate into anything you want it to be. Insert your historical train wreck of choice here. The Crusades, slavery, Inquisition, lots of things. So when we approach Scripture for validation instead of revelation, it's an exercise in missing the point. It ends up becoming wanting to validate our own voices, giving us our own echo chamber about our vision for life. And if we fall into that, we will see no prophetic power to set us free to live in alignment with God's reality. We'll see no prophetic power to transform us. It'd be like Thomas Jefferson's life. Thomas Jefferson life, if you don't know the story, it's an actual thing here. He took the Bible and cut up, cut out the pieces he didn't like. That Bible is literally on display in a museum somewhere out east. It allowed him to continue to own slaves and sleep with whoever he wanted, including the slaves. And to be honest, this is a very American way of reading scripture. Whether you like it or not, you have that centripetal individualism alive in you. And I do too. And from a progressive side, you can read it when it comes to your choice of lifestyle. Or from a conservative side, you can read it for condoning military violence. You can read it how you want to read it. Or you can let it read you and mess with you. Our approach to scripture has got to come from a heart posture where we tap into a deep desire that's underneath all the other desires to discover the will of God for our lives and for our time. A.J. Swoboda says this, so much of life is about the visible but not all of life is visible. In fact, it is most certain that a good deal of human life is lived in a minefield of invisible things that escape the human eye. See if any of these hit you. Invisible attitudes, invisible powers, invisible beliefs, and invisible agendas. Deal with any of those in your life? Are there chances that you and I wrestle with the subtle and individual attitudes and powers and beliefs and agendas? Maybe you have a problem with the word authority today. 
But let's just talk about it in the words of trust. What do you trust? At the end of the day, so much of how we live comes down to who we trust or what we're trusting in. What stories, what voices, what systems do we trust in? Do we trust the voice in our head? Or maybe the voices that are coming into our head through our our AirPods, right? Are we trusting the desires um, in our life that feel like the most accurate indicator of what a life well-lived should be? Are we trusting in our news feeds or in our jesting of social media? Or do we trust the story of Jesus as he comes to us through the Old and New Testament? Do we trust the words of God? Regularly ending his teachings, Jesus would do something unique. He would say things like, repent and believe the good news. Repent is this word metanoia. It means to rethink everything that you think you know is true and what you think will lead you to a life, the life you crave. Rethink the story you're living by and participate in a different one. We think of it as just confessing and feeling bad about yourself. It's actually changing stories. And then belief is to trust. Change your story and trust. Trust in his teachings. Trust in Jesus' mental maps. Trust in the scriptures that come with him to lead you into a life of the kingdom. And so here's what I want to do to close. I want to end with some prayer. And what I want to do is something a little unique in the sense that some of you in the room have, um, you may find yourself at a point in your life where you're seeing, as I'm talking, your story out of alignment with the story that God has on offer for you. It might not be some grand thing, not Robin Banks on Saturday night and whatever, you know, but you can see it. There are invisible agendas, invisible beliefs, under the surface things that you notice in your life that are keeping you from living that kind of life that is flourishing. I'm not talking like prosperity flourishing. I'm talking about whole and full and complete, not without problems and circumstances. I'm talking about what is this act that I'm supposed to be a part of? And for some of you in this room, you've never taken that step to even just offer your life over to this story. This opportunity to say no to the stories you've been living by and yes to this beautiful, mysterious, kingdom, flourishing story. And so what I want to do is I want to pray together, but I want to pray together. We're going to, I'm going to have you guys stand in a second, and we're going to pray, and then we're going to have an opportunity to pray for each other as we close as a gathering today, as we close this series today. So 
Will you stand? As we feel our bodies stretching out, standing straight, as an act of as an act of trust, Jesus, we come before you today. And we take serious the words that you brought to us about repenting and believing in the good news. God, that you want us to rethink everything that we've come to believe is true about the life that we think we crave. And you're asking us to rethink it. For some of us, God, in this room, we have tried that life, that that outside of alignment life, and it has just led us to cul-de-sac after cul-de-sac. Pain and turning around and dead ends. And we've come to believe that we haven't trusted in your goodness. Jesus, you, part of this story, the focus of this story is the change the defeat of all that is broken, that you conquered death, that you broke this rinse and repeat cycle of not trusting in God's plan, God's story for humanity. And where Israel failed and where we failed and where all of humanity failed, you came and conquered. And because of that, you made us a way for us to take off the rinse and repeat brokenness in our lives. You made a way. And now you're inviting us to step into the story and to live with creativity within this story. Imagination. What does this look like? What does the kingdom look like in my world? What does it look like for me to to live out this part. And so this morning, we just want to offer God ourselves. We want to offer you our lives. And so this morning, if you are standing and you have recognized a place in your life that is out of alignment, and you want to make this a moment of turning and turning into a new story, whether this be the first time you've ever done that in your life or just another time that you've recognized it. I just want you to sit where you are. And this is an opportunity for us to just pray for you. Pray for you in this moment. To invite you to be a part of this beautiful, beautiful story. And so if someone's sitting nearby you, would you put a hand on their shoulder, come around them, and we're just going to pray together.